to welcome you this morning. Those of you online, thank you for joining us. I started last week a sermon series entitled, This is My Story. My intent is, as we come out of the pandemic and the shutdown, for us to make sure that we know clearly who we are. Because if you know who you are, then you know what to do. If you don't know who you are, you're endlessly looking for what to do. And so last week I talked about how that the God of the universe created us created a universe a hundred billion light years across 14, I don't know the number, but all of that so that he could have someone to love. It was all designed for us so he could give birth to us and love on us. So we've got a lot of resources available to help you internalize this. What I'd love for you to do is to memorize some of the scriptures that we're using to tell the story. Our bookmark actually has those scriptures on it. You can pick up a copy of the bookmark. You can get it online, by the way, uh, on our website. And uh, what I really, really want to challenge you to do is to think in terms of what is the story that God has given us, and then how do we find our place in that story? And so today, uh, we go into the most difficult sermon of this entire series, what I think is a 10-week series totaled. This is the most difficult sermon. Uh, and I have to tell you that I can't short sell you on it, and I'm going to have to be honest with you. And that means it's um, at the very end of the sermon, you're going to be uplifted. But to get there, you might be a little down. Um, I'm not going to lie to you about it because it's a really true and really important uh, truth that we have to share this morning from the Word of God. So I've got good news and bad news, and first we'll do the bad news. Since the shutdowns, I've had the opportunity um, to do some marriage counseling with some of you and, and some others as well. And um, for some of you, your marriages have flourished during these difficult times. But for others of you, it's been a real strain on your marriage. And it just has raised the question for me in a, in a really personal way. How is it that something which was designed to bring us such joy, marriage, can at times bring us the world's most intense pain. How does that even happen? And it makes me think of lots of things that didn't turn out the way we thought they should. How is it that a dear friend of ours who only ate healthy, exercised regularly and took great care of herself should suddenly die of colon cancer? How is that even possible? Or how is it possible that a friend of mine can, can preach a sermon on the Holy Spirit not a radical sermon, not a heretical sermon, just a sermon on the Holy Spirit out of the Bible in a church and get fired by his elders for preaching out of the Bible. How does that even happen? Or how does it happen that parents, I'm thinking of a set of parents now that I've known for many years, could raise their sons in impeccable ways, as far as I can tell, impeccable ways, only to have the oldest son a perennial drug addict for years now? How does that happen? We have to answer that question today because, first of all, it's part of our story. And it's a part of our story which, if we don't know about, will leave us always confused and never fully knowing what to do. But second, we need to know this because these are the opening pages of the Scriptures. The story of how the world got so messed up, how it got so shattered, and how we find ourselves now in a world that is so shattered that... It even appears now to be coming apart at the seams. How does that happen? The Bible gives us the answer, and I want to remind you it starts by affirming the goodness of creation. 
In fact, I want to say it this way. That, that sense that you have, if you're a thinking person, the sense that you have that the world shouldn't have been like this, that's the right sense. Because it wasn't designed to be like this. The world was not created for there to be pain. The world was not created for there to be death and dying. The world was not created for there to be racism and hatred and injustice. The world was not created for there to be cancer. This world was not created for that. So the Bible affirms some basic truths that, again, I just want to say, one of the beauties of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, one of the beauties, if you're not a believer, go back and listen to these verses. Because one of the beauties of Genesis 1, 2, 3 is that it's so true. I don't just mean inspired. It's that too. I mean it's true. When you read it, it's like the story of each one of us. Each of us starts out with a certain degree of innocence in life. If you've had children, you know this. If you haven't had children, you've been a child. You know this. You start with a certain degree of innocence. And then at some point, something happens and you give up your innocence. I don't know when I gave up mine. But I'll tell you what pops in my head when I think about giving up my innocence. It's the first time I learned to cuss. And I'm not even trying to be funny. I grew up with brothers. I can remember it still. I was in the fourth grade. I heard some cussing at school. I didn't know you could cuss. I didn't. I, honestly, before that, I'm not sure I'd ever sinned in the sense of being culpable for something I knew was wrong. But when I heard it, I wanted to cuss. And you know why? You know why I wanted to cuss? I took great delight in cussing because I like doing evil. That's why. I mean, be honest. That's why we sin, because we like it. But that's not how it was created. In the beginning, the Bible says we were created in the image of God. And we were not just created in the image of God. We're the pinnacle of the creation. That's why we humans, we know we're different. We know we're different from animals. We're different from plants. You're different from a pew and a piece of carpet. We're different. We know we bear the image of God. So we have a right to expect something that's like God, but we don't see it. Not only this, but the Bible says at the very last verse of Genesis chapter 1, that when God looked at creation, it wasn't bad. It was good. It was very good. This creation was supposed to be very good. What went wrong? That's the story today. What went wrong? And then as we keep reading, we discover that we humans were actually intended for a utopia. We're intended to live in a utopia. This past week, police in Seattle dismantled CHOP, a Capitol Hill-occupied precinct. The individuals who set up this 10 or 12 or 15 block uh, zone that they said was police-free and kind of an independent zone and so forth, let me just say that I'm going to come back to it in a second, but let me say this. Besides the hooligans who attach themselves to everything, the guys who set that up were looking for the right thing. And they, just want you, they were looking for a utopia. They were looking for a place of justice. That's a good thing to look for. They were looking for a place of equality. That's a good thing to look for. They were looking for love and a place where everybody belonged. Those things, those utopian dreams are part of our DNA because we were created in the image of God and placed in a garden. You were made for utopia. You were made for a garden. You were made for Edom. But here's the problem. Oh, actually, before we get to the problem, let me say one other thing. In chapter 3, embedded in the story of the fall, is this little snippet. In the Garden of Eden, God used to walk with Adam and Eve. You were not only made to live in a utopian garden, you were made to walk with God. So I just want to make sure we understand this. This is what it was supposed to look like. Me in the image of God, me living in a utopia, 
and me having a relationship with God. And to have those things is to be fully human. That's why this book is so enduring, because it's so true. You know these things in your heart. That's why you agitate for these things. If you didn't have a Bible, you would still agitate for these things, because we're genetically wired to want to be like God and live in a paradise with Him. So what went wrong? And that's what takes me then to Genesis chapter 3. And I want to read just a section of Genesis 3, because again, the truthfulness of the Bible rings out here. The serpent. You'd have to read a whole lot more than I've got time to read today. Just This is the description of the evil one. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, so there's Adam and Eve. These are historical persons. Uh, did God really say, you must not eat from the tree of the garden, from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. And the serpent replies, you will not certainly die. God knows that when you eat from this tree, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Two things I want you to see that the serpent does. First, he questions the Word of God. Did God really say that? And by the way, I just want you to know, this is the root of all sin. Did God really say that? And the second thing I want you to see is that where Satan wins over Adam and Eve is he says, how would you like to be God? You know, you can be God. And it's this pride, this arrogance, this uh, allocation of what belongs to God to ourselves that is the root of all sin. Everything from the fall is rooted in this desire to be God myself. And I want to talk about that just for a second because what I want to say is Adam and Eve discovered the difference between good and evil not by taking a philosophy course. They discovered it by eating the tree they were told not to eat. That is, they sinned. And by sinning, they discovered they lost their innocence. Let me come back to it. I, I, wanna, I, I think I'll mention this again, but now and then maybe one other time. I think I was an innocent kid. I never wanted to do wrong. I don't remember thinking about doing wrong. The first time I really remember it was when I heard my brother cussing. And I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what the cuss words meant. But I heard him cussing and it sounded so, it looked so cool. It was like so rebellious. And I thought, I'm going to do that. And I will never forget the feeling that I had of getting away with something wicked. I loved it. Now you be honest. The reason you sin is because you love your sin. Nobody's forcing you to do it. You love it. I'm going to come back to it in a second. But this is what happened in the garden. What happened in the garden is that God said, you can have anything here, anything, but don't eat that tree. And what do Adam and Eve do but run straight to that tree? Because they love their evil. There's something broken in our will that leads us to want to do that, which is rebellious against God. And this is what it is. I want to be God. Rather than worship the one true God, I want to be God. And so I'm willing to disobey the God who is so that I can make myself into a God. And here's what I want you to see. It is that impulse that is destroying planet Earth, the desire to be God. So here's what it cost. Isaiah 59 puts it this way. It's not that God's arm is too short to save you. 
And it's not that his ears are so thick he can't hear you, but instead we have separated ourselves from God through our sin and our rebellion. So when Adam and Eve sinned, here are their punishments. Listen carefully. We'd have to read the whole text to get it. I'm going to summarize it. First, they discovered that instead of a garden paradise, now they would have to fight thorns and thistles and weeds and endure great pain. Adam was told not that, hey, he wasn't told you're going to have to work from now on. Work is a gift from God. Work is a great gift from God. What he was told is from now on, every time you try to accomplish something, you're going to have to fight with the sweat of your brow. You're going to fight thorns and thistles. It's going to be hard work from this point forward. Futility is going to mark your life, Adam. And Eve, here's what he said to women, not that you're going to have to have babies. That's a blessing from God. What he says is it's going to hurt like you can't believe to have a baby. And then he said this. You keep reading what he said to Eve. He said, and Eve, there's going to be a man who always has his foot on your head from this point forward. That's the first thing that lost, a futility. That's why we have the cancer. That's why we have wind. That's a great thing. Turn into tornadoes. That's a terrible thing. That's why we have marriages that were the first gift from God that turn into divorce, which are the greatest curse you can experience. That's why. Because now that which was designed to be good is going to be futile for us and painful for us. Here's the second thing that happened to them. They were run out of the Garden of Eden. We were banished from utopia. We couldn't handle it. We wanted to be God of utopia. So God said, not mine, go build your own. And the rest of human history is a story of us trying to build our own utopia. And it hasn't worked. But there's a third loss that occurred. When we were banished from the utopia God gave us, the Garden of Eden, we lost access to the tree of life. So now suddenly we're cursed by death. We were designed to live. Instead, we die. Even this week. Even, um, I've, I've even heard a, a dear friend and really a legend in our community passed away this weekend. And I haven't confirmed it, so I'm going to be careful not to say too much. And then finally, and the worst, this is the worst. A holy God cannot abide a relationship with an unholy person. We lost our relationship with God. Remember, it's not that his arms are too short to reach us. And it's not that his ears are too stopped up to hear us. We turned our back on God in an act of high treason. And we said to God, I think I'll be God from now on. And he said, okay, it's all yours. And that's the bad news. That is part of our story. If we don't get that part of the story right, let me tell you, if you don't get that part of the story right, everything you do will make it worse. You have to get this part right. And I want to talk about that for just a second on two scales. First, on a national scale, in part because I don't want to ignore what's happening nationally in the U.S. And then second, I want to talk about it on a personal scale. It won't take too long. Let me say this, I want to suggest that there's a counter story that's being told largely in North America, but other places in Western civilization, but now it's spilled over into other areas. I want to be careful how I talk about this, and I want to ask you to listen with gracious ears, because you could hear, hear me to be saying things that I'm not saying, and it's easy to read into things. I'm going to try to be really articulate in what I say, and I don't mean anything more than what I say, but let me say this. Western progressivism gives us an unbiblical and different story. It's not your story. Now, I want to talk about that for just a second. 
uh, progressivism in America is about 200 years old. And I want to argue that uh, through much of its history, progressivism, not as a politic, but as a philosophy, progressivism has added value to America. In fact, the matter is, progressivism sometimes was more biblical than biblical Christianity was. In the civil rights movement, progressives were oftentimes closer to the heart of Jesus than Baptist church members, Methodist church members, Presbyterian church members, and Church of Christ church members. But the problem with progressivism is that it has always seen humans as the center. That's part of progressives, progressivism's vision. It's the vision that everything starts with humans. And so progressivism tends to drift away from God. It tends to have a godless foundation for its ideology. And that explains why progressivism ultimately always downplays the sinfulness of humanity, but then increases our sin. Think about it. Progressivism is the belief that everybody's basically okay, and then it's a rage and an anger when they're not. The biblical story is that nobody's okay. It's a very different story from that of progressivism. Progressivism starts with the story we're all basically okay. All we need is a little nudge and we'll be in utopia ourselves. We can build our own Tower of Babel. And it doesn't work. What works is when we recognize we cannot build a Tower of Babel. We cannot save ourselves. We need salvation from above because we're all sinners. We're all broken. You love your sin as much as I love mine. And so progressivism starts out, for example, by saying all women deserve their rights. This is true, but in progressivism, it ends up killing millions of people in abortion. You see, it started for the right reason. Of course, women deserve every right a man has. But at the expense of millions of babies' of life, babies' lives, Progressivism starts out by saying, we want to affirm all genders, however many they're counting now, and ends up undermining the very families that give us our foundations for living as humans. It starts with a good ideal, but because it doesn't accommodate the biblical teaching of the sinfulness of humanity, it misses the mark, and it will always miss the mark. It starts by saying, we must care for the poor. Well, of course we should. We're Christians. And then oftentimes undermines the dignity and value of work, which leaves the poor even poorer. Now poverty, not just economically, but poor in spirit as well. It starts by singing the song of the brotherhood of man. The lesbian progressive mayor of Seattle announced about CHOP, this independent zone, that it may well turn out, she said, to be the summer of love. That's what she said, until the protesters showed up at her house. My point is, I'm not trying to knock anybody. What I'm saying is, this is what happens when you don't take the sinfulness of humans seriously. The biblical story starts with the recognition that all of us are sinners. And so where progressivism starts by saying we're going to create the summer of love, is that what we're seeing? Instead, we see rage and hatred. I even saw last night a group singing, God... F the UFA. Pardon me for saying it, but I'm just telling you, that's, 
That's not what progressivism started out to do. It started out to bring everybody together in love. What I'm suggesting is when you fail to appreciate the sinfulness of humanity, you will come up with all kinds of strategies that make it worse. Starting, starting with the assumption I can be an angel always ends with the practice of me being a demon. And if you want to see the history of progressivism, it's writ large across the 20th century. The Soviet Union, I was in the Soviet Union. Not Russia, the Soviet Union. I was there when it was a communist country. I remember going to the department stores and there was one can of beans for seven million people. If you want to see what it looks like, Stalin murdered 10 million people in the name of progressivism. Mao Zedong murdered 50 million Chinese people in the name of progressivism. Why? Because he started out to prove that we're good enough and ended up proving how evil we can be. I suspect that Fidel Castro started with all the right motives. Let's stop the poverty. Let's stop, stop the starvation. Let's give ourselves equality. Those are the right motives. But minus God, it always devolves into death and destruction without God. This is why the biblical story is so important. It keeps the right perspective. We want the same things, but we have to be shrewd and honest about the sinfulness of humanity. Okay, enough. Oh, no, it's not because I want to say one other thing. I want to say this also about race. So this morning I preached at the Boulder Crest Church of Christ in south of Atlanta. It's a, a predominantly black church of about 700 people. When, when uh, George Floyd was killed and uh, all the protests broke out, and my heart just grew immediately heavy, especially for our African-American, uh, for everybody who's black in America, all people of color. So Kelvin Teamer, who is the lead minister there, and I, uh, Boulder Crest Church Christ, we said, look, we got to swap pulpits. We need to show some solidarity. If the church can't do something right about this, nobody can. So Kelvin and I both recorded sermons, and uh, they played me this morning at their church. And next week, God willing, we're playing him at our church. And here's what Kelvin and I both want to say. We both want to say the problems that blacks in America face, they are real problems. They're not made up. And those of us who are white need to hear this. These are not made up. It's years and years and years of slights and mistreatments and injustice. But the solution we want is not a godless solution. We want a God-filled solution. We want a biblical solution where the people of God rise up and say, you're not going to do that on my watch. It's understanding the right way. In fact, I just want to say, look forward to Kelvin next week, but I want to say this. A group of us in the Churches of Christ have gotten together, so God willing, in about 10 days on July 15 and 16, that's Wednesday, Thursday night, we want to do kind of a conference on race where we bring the Bible into this and say, all right, as people of God, can't we lead the way to racial justice and reconciliation? And I'm inviting all of you to that. You'll get more information on it. I just don't want you to, I don't want it to drip off, uh, to, to get off your radar. And um, Yeah. So I want to make sure that you hear me to be saying the problems are real. We're not denying the problem. If you deny the problems, you're sound asleep. But the solution has to be a God-centered solution or it will not work. It makes it worse. But now, again, that's easy because we're talking about somebody else now. So let me wrap it up by saying let's talk about you. Let's talk about us. Because here's the deal. Most of us believe that everybody else's sin is a pretty big deal, but mine's not. 
When you look at porn, that's what you believe. What's porn? Who's porn hurting? That's what you believe. When you lie to your husband, you think to yourself, it's not that big a deal. I have to to survive. Well, I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know what you're telling yourself, but you don't think it's a big deal. You don't think it's a big deal when you cheat on your numbers. That's, that's some, the, the big sinners, their name Adolf Hitler, not me. And what I want to make sure we understand is that every single sin we commit and every act of righteousness we omit is treason against the God of the universe. We earned the banishment we received from utopia. We earned a relationship where God would not have anything to do with us. We earned our deaths. We earned our judgment. All of us did. And so in the Bible, what makes sin, sin? Sin is the breaking of a law that was intended for our good. Sin is a disease on the health of creation. Sin is a pollution of God's good creation. Sin is a dishonor to an honorable God. Sin is an act of rebellion that seeks to overthrow the God of this universe, the king of the universe. And I just want to make sure we understand, we as humans are intricately tied to one another. Every little sin affects the whole universe. Every sin affects the whole universe. That's what I don't think we understand. God has given me so much wealth. When I use it all on my latest toys, do I not realize someone somewhere on planet earth could have used just that dollar for food? And in my arrogance, my pride, because I want to be God, I spend it on me. Do we not realize that cost somebody their life? Back to my story. This is a true story, and I'm ashamed to tell you this. I learned to cuss. I'm fourth grade. Julie and I were working on a church bus together. Some little girl at school, I, I was at John Coleman. I don't remember, maybe I was fifth grade. I don't remember what grade I was in at this point when this happened. I had created a little diorama out of clay, and I was so proud of it. It was like a Civil War diorama. You know what I'm talking about? Little action figures and all. And she knocked it out of my hands walking down the hall. She's two or three years younger than I was. And I cussed at her because I'd learned to cuss, and it felt good. I cussed at this little girl. I mean, I, I don't know what I called her. I don't even remember the words, but it was whatever bad words I could think of at the moment. Listen to this. I'm not making this up. The very next Saturday, we're knocking doors to invite people to ride our church bus. I knock on a door, and guess who answers the door? That little girl. You know what she did when she saw me? She screamed and closed the door. I've never forgotten that because you know what I think? I don't know who it is. For all I know, that was her only shot at the gospel. And now she, her kids, her grandkids, for all I know, generations are lost because of my sin. I thought it was cool. My sin doesn't, doesn't impact anybody else. There is no such thing as a harmless sin. No such thing. If quantum mechanics tells us anything, it tells us this. When you flip a muon over here on this side of the universe, a hundred billion light years away, another muon flips at the same time. When you thought to yourself that this, uh, this ring that holds your Coke cans, when you throw that out the window because you don't feel like messing up your car, and that ring washes down the rivers and ends up in the Indian Ocean and kills the last tilapia. What you don't realize is when you threw that ring of coke out, some sweet, 
precious little girl made in the image of God curled up and died a slow, agonizing, starving death because you killed the last fish. You don't think it happens? When you scream at your wife in senseless anger, three blocks away, a girl you never met spills gravy all over her white dress. Every sin has ripple consequences. And all of us are throwing garbage into the water from which each of us must drink. I want to make sure we understand this because we will never get to the good part of our story if we don't acknowledge the bad part. And it is bad news. And I want to say, if you don't believe in Jesus, I've got good news for you because original sin, the belief that we're all sinners, is the only part of Christian doctrine you can actually prove. All you got to do is open your eyes. All you got to do is open your eyes. So yeah, I've got bad news for you. Paul sums it up. Let me read from it. It's Romans 7. And Paul says, man, I don't even want to sin and I can't seem to stop. I don't even want to sin and I can't seem to stop. Here's how he puts it. And this is bad news. He says, I find a law at work within me. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. In my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of sin that's at work within me. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. So that's the bad news. I told you I had good news. The good news is not this. It's not that we were created good, we broke it, but if we just try hard enough, we'll build a utopia here. That's not the good news. That's not even good news. Here's the good news. The good news is right after Paul says, who will rescue me, this wretched man that I am, he says this. Therefore, chapter 8, Romans and verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set us free from the laws of sin and death. The good news is that God looked down on his children and saw our treason and said, I'm not going to give up on them. And he launched what we'll see in the very next lesson is the greatest rescue mission in the history of the universe. He said, I'm coming to save you. And that's, that's good news. Let's sing about it.